Hello and welcome to another edition of Razor Wire. Today we're going to be interviewing Jeff Hall, a legend in the PCI DSS community, as he actually is the PCI guru, a well-known blogger who has been blogging about PCI DSS for as far back as PCI DSS has been a big thing within the business world. He's very knowledgeable, he's a personal hero of mine, and I've myself received plenty of advisory from his blog. He's also part of the uh, PCI DSS Dream Team, another well-known group of people who get together and podcast about the nuances of PCI DSS version 4, previous versions as well, and what it means and some of the more interesting things within that particular auditing space that we're coming up. So we're going to be interviewing him today with regards to how we got into information security, his thoughts on information security, both today and as he's progressed through his career, uh, and maybe a few interesting pieces on the next version of PCI DSS, which comes out, uh, in a, well, it's already out, but it comes into effect next year. So let's just see what he's got to say. I'm really, really looking forward to this interview. So thank you very much, and on to the interview. Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. So hello and welcome to another edition of RazorWire. I'm really, really honored today in my interview uh, season where I'm sitting down and chatting with some really big names in the industry. And this is a particular personal hero of mine. And I, I, I am going to do a bit of hero worship. I apologize, Jeff. But this is uh, Jeff Hall. He is the PCI guru. If you've been in PCI for any long, long period of time, you would have at some point come across his blog posting where he kind of goes over some of his thoughts about the various different iterations of PCI uh, that we've gone through over the many, many years and thoughts when dealing with some customers and clients and service providers and any new information that comes out, special interest groups. So we have the fantastic Jeff Hall. Jeff, thank you ever so much for being a part of our interviews. And it's, as I said, it's a bit of an honor. Well, thank you, James. I I appreciate the honor back of being asked to talk. Fantastic. I mean, for all of those out there um, who may not have come across you or they may have come, come, be coming across you for the first time, what's your background? What got you into information security? I'm an old mainframe guy. Grew up on IBM mainframes and Burroughs mainframes. And I got into security by managing the security on those platforms. I learned RACF and ACF2 and Top Secret. And for people from the mainframe era, those names will mean something. For everybody else, it'll be what? <laughs> people think the mainframe isn't secure. And I was listening this morning, actually, to uh, MSNBC, and they were they were bemoaning the IRS running on old technology. I get so upset with that because, yes, the mainframe has been around since before my time. Although, no, OS360 was developed in the 60s. So it actually, I predate, predate it. 
But what people forget is the mainframe today does everything a Windows server or a Linux server does. There's, there's really no difference. So to say the mainframe is old technology is a misnomer, if, if anything. But so I got into security by managing the security of those systems. And then this wonderful little thing called Netware came around. Yeah. And, you know, that, that popped into the world and, you know, hey, Jeff, what, what do you think you can do with this? Well, let's see. You know, we finally got something stable with Network 215. And, you know, we made that work and integrated it into our mainframes. And the PCs were around and those were all networked in. And we had PCs with IRMA cards. And, and then we went to distributed computing and we got uh, Novell Directory Services. And yeah. the wonderful uh, first iteration of Active Directory, which was just a nightmare. Um, yeah. God. <laughs> I still think NDS is still around. I can't remember what it's called now. Neither, neither can I, but I mean, I've it, come it's across it. It's still around. I was told by someone that it still exists. It's sold under a different name. It's still the product it was. It was bulletproof. I loved NDS. Mm. And so it's just done a migration, you know, through that, that got me through that. Now on the compliance side, I got into that just by happenstance. I was doing a project in the early 80s for a large corporation, and we were implementing a new accounting system for them. Their old accounting system developed in the late 50s had finally outdated itself, and they needed something new, and we were implementing a new system. And internal audit, for whatever reason, approached me and said, we think we have a problem with this one contractor. And they explained to me the conditions and, oh, okay, I'll, I'll look at what I can do and get you back some statistics and whatnot. And sadly, come to find out, the client had been told there were 30 to 40 people working in a, an office down in Texas. And there were only two people there, but they were logging into 30 different machines <laughs> and keeping them all operating and whatnot. You know, that was my first forensic operation, but it got me into compliance work because then... What are the controls we have to put in place so this never happens again and all that kind of stuff. And I just found interest in, in that area. And uh, when projects would come up for compliance, I'd, I'd deal with it. I was employed by accounting firms, so it comes kind of naturally in that regard. And then... Um, when I got to the new accounting firm in the late 90s, I coalesced their information security practice into a set of standard practices. 
you know, was doing vulnerability testing and, and pen testing, but then also doing the compliance work around that, which was making sure that they're complying with, at that time, it was banks mostly. So mm -hmm. complying with the FFIEC regs over here in the States. So we were helping them get through their information security assessments. And it's just been downhill from there. I mean, I <laughs> I, did, I did the first, for one of the first third-party assessments for the Visa Kiss back in two thousand two. Yeah. For for the now defunct uh, Circuit City. I mean, it's crazy because I mean, you've 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 seen you know you come from a time period where security was very much in its infancy and you've seen it through all the different stages that it's gone through both from a obviously a compliance perspective but also from a working information security technological and you know sort of governance risk and compliance perspective and how have you found that kind of movement do you think it's been easy do you think it's been a bit tough you know security also always used to be internally focused until we ended up with the internet connectivity and then then it you know morphed into something more than than what it originally was and it was easy to control your own house now you know we're all interconnected and it's not as simple uh, an operation as it used to be um, because not only do you have to worry about your own house, but you got to worry about all the houses that are connected to you as well. The tool thefts are there. I There was a study released that a couple of months back that said the average lifespan of a CISO is 18 to 24 months. One of the biggest problems I think we face in the industry is, is we have a lot of tools but how many of them are actually completely implemented and tuned? And if a CISO only has a lifespan of 18 to 24 months, that's not enough time to implement anything. Mm. I, I don't know of an implementation you complete and get tuned in that time frame. And so as a result, is it any wonder that people are struggling with breaches and false positives and and alert issues where they're getting so many alerts and they just don't know what to deal with and yeah and you know the fatigue that's involved and all that and why is that well i chalk that up to a lack of leadership and it's not so much that the people aren't lacking it's the fact that they're not around long enough to make any impact. No, I totally agree. Because, I mean, like me, you get, to, I mean, I'm a QSA and you're a QSA. So we get to go and see lots of different environments and the way lots of different people do things and different sectors and so on and so forth. And, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and I mean, one of the problems we seem to have in the industry is obviously we don't have enough people. It's suddenly exploded around here, you know, and getting good qualified InfoSec people is a real challenge because all the good ones, and I don't know how you found this, it was actually, I wanted to ask you about this because like during the lockdowns in the pandemic, I was talking to, and I think we've discussed this offline before, I was talking to a number of other peers, like other CISOs that I knew, other QSAs in the UK as well, you know, some of the old school QSAs who'd been around for a long, long time. And 
all of a sudden they discovered this wonderful world where they could sit in the garden and not get shouted at about whether or not they somebody agreed with their estimation of a of a control and whether it was in place properly and all the rest of it. And and I spoke to one or two guys and they were like, I just want to stay in my garden now. I'm I'm done. I've done my stint. Yep. I'm I'm reaching the end of it now. I've got my you know I've got my batch of cash stashed away. And we've kind of lost a lot of the mentors in our industry for the next set of generations of infosec people coming in. And it's a bit of a tragedy because now all of those guys are either freelance or they've just weathered themselves off. All the last remaining CISOs have been snapped up for large amounts of money by whoever would take them. And now it's left us with a lot of people who... They mean well. They could be really, really good in a few years' time, but because they haven't had that mentorship and they haven't had that apprenticeship from us old-timers who've been around for a few few years and seen a few iterations and a few tricks and taught them the way that it is, that it's become a real serious issue. And when I'm auditing now, sometimes people are putting me in front of very, very green InfoSec people who could be really, really talented, but they just need a bit of help. Is that what you're seeing? Because uh, obviously it might be different in the States. I don't know. Is that what you're seeing over over there? You know, I, I'm starting to wonder as I go around to clients, are, is there really a shortage of talent or is there a shortage of leadership mm. of the people that are out there? Mm. I, I I think in some cases, yes, there there's probably a shortage of people. Is it as great as some of the headhunters make us believe? Three million people. I I, I just I, I I don't know that that that's necessarily the right number. I I I definitely believe we don't have enough people, but I also wonder. As you're saying, a lot of the good leadership bolted. They got tired of the garbage. You know, they got tired of people second-guessing them and doing Monday morning quarterbacking because it's easy to Monday morning quarterback a breach. You do the best you can. I the SEC is going after the CISO of... Uh, I was I was about to say, is, is I mean, that's a real... I, I mean, I posted it up on LinkedIn um, the other day when when kind of I, I, I was looking through some of the filing. Um, half it, I don't understand. I'm not, I'm not American, so some of it was kind of very pertinent to over there. But I said, I mean, this is quite a serious game changer because it's now setting a rather serious precedent. You know, it's it's... Well, and, and there are a lot of people that are saying, I didn't sign up for this. Mm. You know, I didn't sign up to have my life dragged through court because you're going to second guess me on what I did when I was trying to stop a problem. Because mm. again, it's, it's always easy to Monday morning quarterback a breach. You know, in hindsight, yeah, maybe we should have done X, Y, Z. But at the moment, when we were looking at it, we thought XYZ would make it worse, not better. Because we thought these other things were going on because, again, did not have the tool set properly implemented. And we were seeing some results from alerts. We didn't know at the time they were false positives. 
And so, you know, we responded with X, Y, you know, with this, because this is what we thought would help us. And in the, the end result, no, it didn't. I'm terribly sorry. I'm human. I did what I thought was responsible at the time, and it didn't work out that way. I think the, the troubling thing for me was it was, you know, part of it was that the CISO wasn't dealing with the vulnerabilities and the the issues that were inherent. And it's like, now I don't obviously know what was going on behind the scenes. I don't know the, the individual myself, but I know what it's like to be in that position. And it's like, well, quite commonly, you don't have the budget. You don't have the people. Quite often, the decision-making about whether the vulnerabilities, specific vulnerabilities are dealt with or not dealt with can be actually down to other people within the business. You know, you're just there to kind of communicate what you think and what the potential issues are and the risk, the quantification, qualification, whatever it is. So I, I do worry now that a precedent's being set that you didn't deal with these vulnerabilities. Well, I, I couldn't deal with them because we didn't, have a, a path to deal with them. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, they think they're going to solve the problem by making examples of people and hopefully that'll fix everything. Mm. And if we go back to the original discussion that a CISO only lasts 18 to 24 months, I would argue that's why the problem exists. Because mm. if you only have a tenure of up to two years, you're not going to change squat. It's, it's just not going to happen. Change takes time. It takes a lot of time. Ask a CEO. Mm. You know, a CEO that gets less than five years, he's not going to make a dimple of change on an organization short of gutting the place and starting over. And nobody really needs to do that kind of a change I mean, there are some rare instances, I suppose, where it might be justified, but in most cases, it's never that bad. Why do you think that CISOs are only lasting 18 months then? Do you think they get better offers? Do you think it's, they just get tired with that particular organization and want to move on to somebody who feasibly may provide them with a bit more resource, with a bit more capability of getting things done? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on behind that. I, you know, they get seduced to the, to the other side because it's a greener pasture or it's told that they're a greener pasture and they'll, they'll get ABC and okay, as well as the additional cash in their pocket and stock rights and all sorts of other good goodies on the other end. But we also know a lot of examples of CISOs that get hung out to dry because an issue happens, whether it's a breach or whatever, but something happens and everybody looks around and says, oh, let's make him the fall guy. Mm. There's a lot of reasons for the movement in the industry and for that 18 to 24 month window. But I also know a lot of CISOs that have been in their job for up to a decade. Mm. Mm. or few and far between. Um, don't get me wrong, but they do exist out there. And it's not that they're living a perfect life or they keep things going, but they're just good journeymen at what they do, which is they keep all the balls up in the air and keep juggling as fast as they can. They've made good decisions on good tool sets. They just work the problems. 
And yeah, it's not an easy job. They're doing the right things. They've made the right calls and they're surviving. Absolutely. Um, I mean, putting back a little bit into kind of a bit more back into the career path that you've taken with compliance. I mean, I've had a kind of very similar journey in mine. Obviously, we're from different sides of the pond, so the viewpoints are slightly different, but I think we're, we're pretty well aligned from what our discussions before. How have you found the journey of compliance from like 2000 through till now? I mean, obviously, you're a QSA. I'm guessing you've done a lot of ISO or you, you do a lot of other different compliance models. I'm sure you've touched uh, Sarbanes-Oxley in the past. We all have at some point or another. We obviously have compliance because people weren't doing what they is perceive, perceive what they should have been doing beforehand. That's why compliance exists. That's let's face it. That's why PCI exists. That's why that's where data protection legislation and what have you exists. It's because people before just weren't really putting enough stock yep. in securing a, a type of data. Uh, we got GDPR, for instance, over in Europe. Dora coming in, which is another one for for Europe, which is you know going to a bit like GDPR. It's going to change the change the way people are fined for a start. Has it reached a point now where we've got too much, where we can't? Because one of the things about security is you've got to be adaptable, don't you? And it changes really quickly, but compliance regs don't necessarily change quite as quickly as as, as obviously the technology and, and what we see in the industry from the malicious actors. So what's your kind of like view on compliance and the journey from 2000 to now? Well, for one... I think people are finally understanding where compliance fits in the puzzle, which is we have protective, detective, and corrective controls. And compliance is just making sure that they're all working, that there aren't any holes, that when something gets detected, it gets corrected, and we go back into the, the circle, so to speak. I think a lot of security people are finally starting to understand that the auditor is not their adversary. They're there to help because a good auditor is not there to beat anybody up. A good auditor is just there to make sure that the control environment is continuing to operate. They're like an auto mechanic. Is the engine running? Is there a knack? Do I hear something wrong? Let's address it before we blow up the engine. That's all. And so I think a lot of security people are coming around to that. There are still a lot of people out there that don't see it that way because, unfortunately, there are a lot of people on a power trip that like the fact that they can write up recommendations and make people look bad. Yeah, I've never understood that. <laughs> I, well, I, I don't know where it comes from either, but there are people out there that seem to get a kick out of that. The problem, though, with what we have is we need to get a single compliance standard. I don't care what we pick. ISO 27K, all of them are just the basics. Yeah, They're not the complete story, and I think that's where people get, get themselves wound up and, and seem to think that, you know, oh, if I'm just PCI compliant, I'm done. No, 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 no. 
No, that's that's just your foundation. Mm. You have to go beyond that in order to be secure. And oh, by the way, I hate to rain on your parade, but there is no such thing as 100% secure. Mm. Talk to banks. Banks have been in business for centuries, right? They have vaults, they have cameras, they have die packs, they have the list goes on and on and on, right? And yet, guess what? Banks still get robbed. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. They they get robbed. Yeah. Yeah. They have all these security controls, and yet people still rob them. Surprise. <laughs> so it it just boggles my mind when I talk to people about information security and they go, oh, if we just do this, this, and this, everything will be great. And I go, no, somebody will come along and invent, invent a better mousetrap yeah. and you're back at it again. And so what banks have done is made it almost not impossible to steal from them, but you don't get a reward for that risk. Yeah. And that's what that's what information security needs to focus on is making it hard so that the reward wasn't worth the risk. You know, just just to toss something in on this, I I the latest buzzword that drives me nuts these days is threat intelligence. <laughs> yeah. And the reason it drives me nuts is who gives a damn? I don't care who they are, why they exist, what the rationale is around this. They want your information, period. Why they want it, for what use they want it, fine. Let the people at Google or whomever are doing these threat intelligence projects figure that out. At the end of the day, my job as a CISO is not to worry about reading threat intelligence reports. It's to focus on protecting the information assets of my organization. I don't have to care about it's Hamas or some hacking group out of Russia or whatever. At the end of the day, they're all out to get my information. And why they're out to get it, I shouldn't have to be worried about that piece of it. I should just focus on protecting it as best I can. I totally agree. And I mean, you know, I do a lot of mentoring of up and coming InfoSec people. And, and I think a lot of us who've been around for a while have said the same thing. It doesn't matter who you are, there's no such thing as 100% protected. You can have all the defense in depth with all the countermeasures, both technological and training and policies and procedures and everything. But something at some point is going to go wrong. And it's either, it, it'll all fall apart. Something will just get through. And I say to them, it's at that point you realize the importance of instant response and good quality, good, managed. You know, none of this waving your arms around the head, screaming, crying, and running around. You sit down, you look at what has happened, you just deal with the issue, and you, you write up your reports and you find what could have done better. And people say to me, it's like, yeah, but, you know, these types of organizations like banks and what have you should never, should never have this. Like Amazon should never have this. I said, no, they have it all the time. Yep. It's how they respond. You know, it, you can't mitigate everything when it all fails. And I have this a lot with PCI audits, especially if people have had an event 
where like a control has failed or whatever. And I say to them, where's your incident? Oh, but the control failed. It's like, yeah, but it's an incident, isn't it? You've, you know, one of your countermeasures that you, you've had in place to meet your compliance has failed, even if it's for a short period of time. Write it up as an incident. Give me as the auditor how you found it, what you found, and how you fixed it. And if you've done that, okay, there's going to be a note there that there was a, a, an issue, but you've already fixed it. And it's great. For me as the auditor, I know that not only you know you fixed that particular issue in, in the audit process, but your incident response is working. So I'm quite happy to use that same incident sheet later on when we start talking about whether or not your processes are good, because they obviously are if you fixed it. I think a lot of a lot of current infosec people coming up concentrate seemingly more on the defense in depth than they do in in that kind of instant response and training and what have you. Do you find they don't understand truly the concept of defense in depth? Because that's what I'm finding. Because the whole the whole concept of defense in depth is if this control fails over here. There are all these other controls in place that don't make that a deadly problem so that I have time to correct that control and it doesn't create a larger problem. Because what I'm finding is, is they can't connect the dots yeah. in their defense in depth and they don't realize that, yes, they have a control failure here, but they have four or five others in the chain and that's what caused the the whole incident that they've now created a bigger problem. Yeah, no, I agree. The way I try to des- I, I describe like defense in depth to clients and to, to people I'm mentoring is there's two ways to show it. One is an iceberg, one is an onion, you know. Yep. And whatever way you look at it, all of the different layers of your defense have to kind of overlap in some way or another, you know. Right. Um, for instance, as a good example, I sometimes give to people, you know, you want to protect your house, put a, put, put a note on the, you know, put a, a sign on the front of the, the, the front gate that says, beware of the dog and smile, you're on CCTV. Uh, then stick a CCTV camera up, whether or not you got it working, that's down to you to mitigate that, you know, to choose what you want to do to treat that risk of somebody getting in. But simply having the sign, simply having it looks like there's a camera and even if you don't have a dog, have something that occasionally barks, you know, somewhere in the back of the back of the house when you're out. More often than not, the, anyone who wants to rob your house is going to move swiftly onwards because they always go for the better targets, the easier targets, where oh, yeah. there's less chance of them getting caught. Obviously, if you put those kind of control measures into your business, then you're probably still going to get robbed anyway. You know, nobody cares about a barking dog for an office, but you know what I mean. The the, the concept is still the same and. Everything that you do has to overlap. And people like say to me, well, what's the point of policies? And I say, well, policies policies is when everything else has failed and you've got to go back to the employee and say, you did wrong here. <laughs> it's in this policy that you shouldn't have done that. There's the famous InfoSec saying that my security program only has to be better that much than everybody else's because they'll be the ones that get nailed first. Yeah. Well, there and- is that. And I always tell people that's why information security programs change because as the threats change, they inch themselves up ever so slightly to address those threats 
So at least if you're hitting those basic baselines, you're less likely to be a target than the other guy. No, it's very true. It's very true. The big question, I think a lot of people are going to be interested in hearing who who know you, know your blog and all the rest of it, and probably going to wince now. I know I wince when some people ask me about, about this, but uh, we're coming up to PCI version 4, coming in, being in place. We're having to meet it. We discussed off camera some of our impressions behind it, and I know we've got to be a little bit careful what we say because, uh, you know, people probably are listening. But, I mean, what are your impressions behind it from customer view, trying to meet it, and as a QSA, trying to help a customer get through that process? Do you see this as more difficult, less difficult? What's your kind of impressions with with version 4? So... From a merchant perspective, let's start there and then I'll, I'll work my way through to, to the QSA. From a merchant perspective, version four should be a yawn. Mm. It really should. You shouldn't have the data around. You should be using end-to-end encryption. You should be using tokenization. You shouldn't have the data around. Version four, yeah, yeah, right. Service provider, my heart goes out to you. I, I hate to say it, you're screwed. I, I you <laughs> are. This is all focused on the people that can't get rid of the data anymore. Whether you're a gateway, a transaction processor, a bank, whatever, you're just going to have to deal with it. There's, there's nothing more I can say. From a QSA's perspective. If you're auditing a merchant, yeah, it, there's a lot more paperwork involved. So that's going to drive up costs. But really, if you don't have a tool, you're going to invest in one because otherwise you're going to get bound up in the procedural stuff. And if you audit service providers and you don't have a tool, heaven help you. Um, because the, the, just, just the filling out of the paperwork's going to kill you. Why do you think they've gone down that route? I must admit, I mean, when I saw version four and looked at the paperwork alone, I, I kind of looked at the page count and then looked at how many kind of requirements were on each page and went, cripes, they haven't just kind of doubled it. They seem to have like quadrupled it. And I didn't even look at like the executive summary of The Rock first. I was going through the requirements and seeing what they'd done there. Then I made the mistake of going through the executive summary and I saw that nice little graph that says sample and evidence. And I looked at it and went, wow, no, what have they done? And it's like, right, right up every bit of evidence you've got. And I'm like, no way, really? Because, I mean, how's this going to work for requirement 10 where I've got like a million logs? You know, do I write it up as one log set? Do I write it up as like, do I have to do each one? You know, where do we go with this? Because if, if I have to write up each one, my customers are going to have to have that, have that uncomfortable conversation with my salespeople where we're saying, sorry, that audit that took you four weeks to do, five weeks, six weeks, whatever, we're going to have to add another two weeks on because we've got to do a lot more recording. Write about the tool, and you advise me on tools. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm looking out at those at the moment. But what's the rest of the QSA community over in the States thing? Because I know that a lot of them in the UK are kind of sat there going, oh, I'm really not looking forward to this. 
you know, we all hate to say it, but we all know who they are. They're the council's going after the rock mills. Mm. They're tired of the people that walk into the room. Yeah, you're compliant mm. and walk out and fill out the paperwork and move on. Mm -hmm. Because they're required to do however many rocks a month and crank it out and they're paid accordingly and they get a bonus accordingly. And and I think the council's tired of it because when you look at the people who got breached, mm. there's a lot of commonality in who did their assessments. I hate to say that, but... You are right. You look behind the scenes as to who their assessor was, and you go, oh, there's a reason for that. They are the low-cost provider. It is what it is. And I think the council is using the paperwork process to provide more visibility into the quality of the assessment. It's that simple. It's frightening because it's like, I do wonder now, is it going to turn off new QSAs? Because, you know, you look at the early versions of PCI and the paperwork, and it was, it was, it was, some of it was, was really laughable in really in the early days. I'm sorry, PCI Council, if you're watching this thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to take it to task. No, it was terrible. The first version of it, you know, um, but they refined it and they did well and they, they got to kind of where we are now. And yeah, you know, the, the docu documentation is excessive, but it's not that bad. And then I look at version four and go, oh, God, I, I don't know if I want to do one of these. I think I might just get some new QSAs and make them do it <laughs> and just audit what they're doing. Yeah, I'm getting too old to fill out these things. You know, is, is that something purveying around or is it just me? Because I, I guess it isn't just me. No, I, I know a lot of QSACs that are struggling with the version four problem and they're looking at tool sets to clear it up and and create a better environment for it hopefully that's all going to work out for them and i it wouldn't surprise me through the first year or two of version four we we don't see some qsacs maybe hang up the shingle and go it's just not worth it anymore you know, to your point about where we've come from, you know, when, when I did the first Visa KISP, that was a Excel spreadsheet. It had been developed by Deloitte, was created around 99, 2000. This was 2002. And it was focused on nothing but e-commerce. Mm. Uh, they couldn't give a damn about brick and mortar retail. They didn't care the, Cool or... <laughs> was out of e-commerce. So um, we were only looking at e-commerce sales and whatnot and how secure it was. And, and actually, they were reasonably secure, but their biggest problem was vulnerability management of their website. It was a problem then, it's a problem now. And what's going to kill people even doing SAQA is those vulnerability scans and the coming attraction of knowing what scripts you're running on your website. Mm. That one is, because near as we can tell, and we discussed this on the last Dream Team episode, 
near as we can tell, the only way you're going to comply with 643 and what is 1161 is you're going to have to have a tool on your website. Art Cooper brought up a good point saying that for all those SAQA people, his guess is, is you'll be given a choice of tools that you'll be forced to buy when you put up your website and they'll have to implement that for you on it. And then it becomes, well, will the customer actually monitor the alerts when it happens? But, you know, that one is probably going to be the biggest hindrance coming for merchants that thought they were going to breeze through compliance. One last question on the PCI front before I ask you the signature question I ask everybody. Do you think the danger of where the cost of undertaking these audits is going to obviously dramatic, it's going to rise whatever we do, however we look at it with a new version? Does the council run the risk of a wholesale rejection from the merchants and the service providers turning around and saying, you know what, you've made it so complicated now, we just can't deal with this? Do you think that's that's a danger that, that they may face? Not from the merchants. Like I said earlier, the merchants have done a good job getting rid of the data and implementing security on their end. So I think their days of complaints and going, hey, you know, it sucks and grumble, grumble, grumble when the QSA showed up. I think those days are long gone. They're not the problem. I think the real problem coming up is the number of security programs running out there, whether it's the SOC 2 nonsense, the ISO stuff, the GDPR, the PCI, the HIPAA high-tech, the high-trust. At the end of the day, I think, and I've got, a, I've got a presentation I put together that is entitled PCI DSS, the best information security and privacy program ever written. Changed my mind. <laughs> and it usually gets a lot of people going, laughing and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I really think we got to get rid of all the, all the different programs. Mm. It, there's just too many of them out there. Some of them are, are lick your finger, hold it in the air and check which way the wind is blowing to the DSS, which, you know, I always tell people the difference between high trust, well, not even high trust, but the difference between the DSS and everything else is it is not a 10,000 foot look view. No. You're digging in. You're making sure a firewall is there. The firewall rules make sense that they're regularly reviewed, that log data exists, that it's fed into a seam that is analyzed in near real time, that alerts are, are checked, that change tickets are created, that they're closed properly, that people are going out. One of the biggest problems right now that I see, and I'm sure you see it as well, is CICD and AppDev. DevOps and DevSecOps are just a nightmare. From the standpoint of people don't seem to understand, oh, I've got a secure Ansible. I thought Ansible was secure. I've got a secure Jira. I've got a secure uh, Jenkins. 
what do you mean my GitHub is sitting wide open? This is not the development environment of the 90s or even the aughts. The new development environments are a nightmare. Yeah, they've pushed it all out into the cloud, but nobody took the time to secure the damn thing. Yep. You just sit and shake your head, never mind the fact, I can't tell you how many people sit there and go, you know, we we push uh, we push 10 deployments a day. Really? Your code is that flipping bad? You've got to change it <laughs> 10 times a day. And I chalk this up to Scrum. Yeah. I, I don't know how you break a problem down into 30-day sprints and get, get a decent product out the other end. That, my friend, is something I've seen echoed around this particular discipline, our wonderful world of InfoSec, many, many times. And I've been on projects as well where back in the day where it was like little colored notepad tickets on a window, and I'd put my security ones on there, and I'd watch them slowly migrate out to the, wouldn't it be lovely to have, oh, we don't have time to do it. <laughs> oh, it's gone. All right, okay, so we're not doing any of that then. <laughs> well, the, the famous, we'll do that in version two. Yeah, which then becomes version three. And then yep. it's, the, yeah, yeah. And then you move on to something else and it never gets done. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So our time is nearly at an end and I have to ask you this one question. I ask it of everybody. Jeff, if you could go back in time, picture yourself when you got your first InfoSec job where you're actually doing kind of like the infosec side of of wherever you began. Maybe you've just had that phone call to say, yeah, you, you're our infosec manager, whatever it is. Maybe you're in a bar having a drink thinking, fantastic, I'm on this route down to infosec. And then boom, Jeff, as you are now, you come and sit down next to that young self of you having that pint. If you could offer yourself a couple of pieces of advice, what would you say? Focus on the big picture. Look above the trees. Know what you're trying to protect and protect it. Find a tool set or whatever you need in order to do it. You know, you hear the quote, don't sweat the small stuff, but it's all small stuff. And there's truth in that quote, don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, the only way to deal with the small stuff is to fix it with the large stuff so that the small stuff doesn't matter. If the small stuff goes sideways, fine. Yeah, okay, we got we to gotta fix the drain in the bathroom or whatever, but it's not the end of the world because the rest of the building's sound and yeah, we got a little water damage, clean it up and move on. The important thing is to worry about the big picture. Look at the big picture. What are you trying to protect? And just go about protecting it. Mm. If that means encrypting it, if that means putting a firewall in front of it, if it means restricting access to it, if it means all of the above, fine. Just focus on that because I, over time, I think if you look at those things and you focus on those things, all the little shit goes away. And if it does crop up, it's a little minor annoyance. You fix it and you move ahead. Because if you focus on the minutia, 
you'll never dig yourself out of the rut. Never. So look above the trees, look at the big picture, make sure that you're doing the right actions at the right time on the right things, and just keep working that view. The minutia will fix itself as a result. Great piece of advice, Jeff. That is, that is really good. I know you run a dream team. Do you want to tell the people out there where they can find you on the dream team and your blog and you know, anything you want to plug at all? Sure. So the PCI Girl blog is on WordPress. It's I found for some reason, if you go to pciguru.blog, it doesn't always take people to the right place. It works for some people. It doesn't work for others. Not sure why. I've looked at the DNS. It should work. Maybe Cloudflare or somebody's doing something naughty to me. Um, but it can always be found at pciguru.wordpress.com. Um, the PCI Dream Team, the recordings, uh, thanks to Coop's uh, employer, Trusted Sec, they maintain the recordings out on their website, out at trustedsec.com. You can find them there. I'll hold this up. The book. We wrote a book. The Dream Team wrote a book. Fantastic. I'm going to buy a copy of that. Yes. It's it's available on Amazon, so you can find us out there. We do speak around the country. We don't leave the United States too expensive, so... We do have a new member of the Dream Team, Lee Quinton. He's over on your side of the pond. All right. He lives up around, uh, I believe he lives up around Nottingham somewhere. He joined us uh, on the last show and will be continuing forward. I can always be reached at at, uh, truvanis.com, who is my employer. And so... I, I just appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you today, James. Jeff, it's, as I said, it's been truly an honor and, and some of the you've, you've had some really good insight into the business and compliance and where we're going and all the rest of it. Thank you ever so much for coming. And for all of you out there, thank you ever so much for watching this. And we'll be with you again soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.